Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I know a lot about bringing in a bunch of ringers for your Little League Baseball game and still losing anyhow, despite the fact that your team was half ringers. But I don't know a lot about the Great Lakes. That's the purpose of this here show. I'm joined today by Carolyn Foley. Carolyn, welcome back. How's it going? I am all right. Thank you, Stuart. Periodic reminder that I need to come up with an opening segment because how's it going is not an interesting thing for, I mean, we care how's it going, but that's not, anyway, if you have an idea, teach me about the Great Lakes at gmail.com. We need an opening segment. Do do we? Uh, I think you should go with your Great Lakes factoid because my understanding is you all had a very interesting conversation at Iagla that that was wildly inaccurate. That, well, wildly inaccurate is, (laughs) anyway, the point is this, we have some follow-up Great Lakes factoids. It's a Great Lakes factoid, a Great Lakes factoid. It's a great factoid about the Great Lakes. Cha. All right, our Great Lakes factoid this month is all about shells of different kinds. Um, If you didn't listen to our last episode, first of all, you should. Teach me about the Great Lakes.com slash 81 with Katie Stamler. It was wonderful. Super fun, live from the International Association of Great Lakes Research Conference. Katie is amazing. Uh, so the show is amazing. That's how it usually goes. Um, our guests are always amazing. That's not true. Anyway, the point is this. Important snail shell follow-up. Uh, first of all, snail shells, um, so so somebody, and this was actually not me, I'm not saying somebody to cover up for me, but somebody who shall rename nameless, um, posited that maybe snails outgrew their shells and then traded um, shells. This is not at all correct. In fact, it's completely wrong. Um, so snail shells are... are <laughs> exoskeletons um they're made largely of calcium carbonate it turns out so snails are born with this shell and it grows with the snail um they do need calcium to make this happen i found out in my research i did way more snail research than i ever have before and um they actually start right away they eat their egg casing typically to get that initial jolt of calcium uh right there and then some snails i found this out i want video of this they even cannibalize their unhatched siblings uh, to get a little additional jolt of, of uh, it's like the five-hour energy of snails, uh, babies, I guess. But the good news is there aren't any nerves or blood vessels there, so they can survive uh, and even repair minor breakages. So if you, you know, pick up a snail, look at it, and crush its shell a little bit, maybe it'll be okay. Um, hermit crabs, on the other hand, hermit crabs, their shell is not their exoskeleton, right? Um, and in fact, if they're out of their shell, they look like little crawfish, or as we call them here, what do we call them here, uh, crayfish? But, you know, with lots more claws and not the big tasty ones in the front. Um, uh, but their exoskeleton is very soft. So they need shells. And that's um, when they're not part of their skeleton, they get them from other gastropods or whatever. And so that's why they crawl to bigger ones as they get older. And there's actually a little bit of a fitness issue there, Caroline, I learned, which is that, um, you know, there's oftentimes competition for the few gastropod shells they can find. And so it's a classic Darwinian survival of the fittest, I suppose. And uh, all of this actually is different from a turtle shell, which is part of the endoskeleton of the turtle. Uh, Their ribs and their vertebrae, they fuse to make the carapace, which is covered with little scutes that are similar to our fingernails. Question for Dr. Fish next month. Um, Are those scutes are similar to scutes on sturgeon? I wonder. It's an important question. And the other thing I found is that turtles can sometimes regrow their shells, but a concern since they're vascular. Oh, wait, they may or may not be vascular, but they got blood vessels and i don't know what vascular means who am i kidding um but bleeding and infection can be a problem uh with turtles when they break their shells and so there's an article on this um 
yeah, go ahead. Sorry, let me, finish let me it up. Finish plug up. the link, and then I would love to hear what you That's have okay. to add because this is all I got. Um, the only other turtles I know about are the ninja variety. Anyway, um, we have a link in the show notes to a brief Scientific American article on snails versus turtle shells, and then we'll also put the Wikipedia hermit crab uh, page in there. Okay, so first off, I'm really sorry I wasn't there because I could have helped with this in the moment had I been there. Um, but I do want to add another uh, facet to the Great Lakes factoid that I learned factoid earlier facet? this year. Yeah. Um, so um, there is a, a, an effort to survey the Great Lakes. Uh, it's called the Cooperative Science and Monitoring Initiative. And there are people from the US side and from the Canadian side who kind of work together to um, like they cycle around to different lakes each year um, and they they sort of try to tackle some of the issues associated with that particular lake. Um, and it's a it's a cool effort. Um, but one of the things that happens as part of this is a benthic survey where they're collecting organisms that live kind of at the bottom and invertebrates and all the fun stuff. Um, in Lake Michigan, they found that the exotic uh, New the exotic or like new invader, aquatic invasive species, the New Zealand mud snail. New Zealand mud snail. Yeah, it was first recorded in the lake in 2006, and it has increased in abundance and distribution in the last five years. So between their survey in 2015 and their survey in 2020 21, because COVID messed up some of their things. So um, it now comprises... Now, there aren't a whole lot of snails in Lake Michigan, I don't think, but of the snails that yep. are there and the way that they surveyed them, um, this New, New Zealand mud snail is comprises 93% of the total lake-wide snail density and 79% really? of its biomass. So Amazing. That's another... You just have that floating around in your head. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's, so, that's a strange place in my head. All right. So here's, we'll do an episode on this, but I'm sometime else. But what I'm curious about is that um, because they've increased the snail biomass or are they out competing? Let's not ask snails? that question right now. Let's ask that that's question what to I the said. scientist and then get to our actual guests for today. We'll ask that question. Tune in. <laughs> that's a teaser for a future episode. So people will be glued to their podcaster. Anyway, let's uh, transition into our interview. Our guest today is Meredith Brown. Meredith is the Director of Special Projects for Canadian Geographic, and she's a Riverkeeper Emeritus and Founding Executive Director of Ottawa Riverkeeper. Meredith, thanks for coming on. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're excited. And we've got a lot of things to talk about. But let's, um, let's start big picture, if you don't mind. So I was reading your bio, which is very impressive, and you have kind of a long career of thinking about caring for, working with the water. I think why what got you interested? Why are you so water oriented and freshwater oriented? What's your origin story? I think so I I was really lucky enough to grow up in a small town in the Great Lakes watershed on a lake, Trout Lake, and I kind of lived the swim drink fish dream. Every summer school was out, my mom would pack up her seven kids, put us in the station wagon and we'd go live on the lake. I think I was barefoot most of the summer, never got in the car, just in boats, and um, we drank right out of the water, and and I think that, you know, I, I really believe the landscape kind of imprints on you, and um, 
and I was a paddler and I was part of this canoe club and kids would come from clubs that were on some of the big great lakes where it was really dirty and they didn't want to go swimming and they'd come to our canoe club on this beautiful lake and they'd all tip their boat so that they could go swimming in the lake and they loved it and I thought to myself like wow those poor kids like imagine living on a polluted water body and um and that started my, I think that started my journey uh, and all my academic career. I, you know, I studied environments and water and uh, spent a lot yeah. of time doing stream restoration. And um, I think it really stems into those early days. And so are you, have you been mostly focused on smaller lakes and streams or have you gone to, you know, a range from like, little ditches all the way up to big great lakes and like the st lawrence seaway yeah a, a real mix i'd say um i did i moved out west to do my masters and i started doing that's where i did a lot of work in restoration stream restoration i'm actually an engineer by training mm. um with a biology background and then i did a my my um masters in a more kind of in resource environmental management which i really use think about as people management yeah. <laughs> um, and I did a lot of work in BC on stream restoration and at the time they were investing a lot of money because with the logging practices they were destroying these amazing salmon streams so I did a lot of work for about a decade in BC on these big steep uh, salmon streams and then I moved back east and um, yeah, have primarily since I moved back east working in the Great Lakes St. Lawrence watershed for 15 years. I was I started an organization, Ottawa Riverkeeper, part of the Waterkeeper Alliance, and worked on the Ottawa River, which is the largest tributary of the St. Lawrence River. And if you think about the Great Lakes, so that you know that the St. Lawrence River drains all the Great Lakes into the Atlantic Ocean. And the Ottawa River is a really huge river. The flow at peak flow, the amount of water coming out of the Ottawa River is about the same as the amount of water coming out of the Great Lakes into the St. Lawrence. Wow. So it's a really big river system. Huh, no idea. So you talk about the river keepers. What I, I hear that I I I love river keepers because it sounds so good, right? I mean, I like rivers. I had similar. I didn't grow up as idyllic a childhood as you. But, but, you know, I, I did a lot of canoeing and stuff as a kid. So river is very positive and keeping. I love that. So I automatically love, but I realized I have no idea what river keepers are do. So what, what is a river keeper and why did you decide to start that? I mean, who starts a river keeper? I guess type A people, but, but, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's part of this international alliance of water keepers. The, the movement actually started on the Hudson River. And the, it was a, really the commercial fishermen who were, feeling pretty distraught because they could no longer eat the fish out of the river because they were being polluted with PCBs and all kinds of really bad uh, chemicals. And a lot of different people were getting together and saying, you know, what are we going to do? And they chose to kind of use the law to help um, make their case. And they started a giant court case against General Electric and they won and they used that money to invest back into the organization to start protecting the river. And other people around the country started seeing what they did on the Hudson and said, I like what you're doing. We want to do it on our river. And so this waterkeeper movement grew. And what I love about the waterkeeper movement is that I call it place-based advocacy. So 
uh, as a waterkeeper, you're actually fighting for the water where you live. So um, like the Ottawa River Keeper, we work in the Ottawa River watershed. We're, um, you know, fighting for the protection and restoration of that water body. So each waterkeeper group that starts are connected to a lake, a river, a bay. Um, so it's place-based yeah. and it's, I, what the other thing I love about it is it's a real mix of science and advocacy and really grassroots organizing, you know, mm -hmm. and what, one of the things that I've learned over my career is it really takes people to make the changes, right. Yeah. That you, you need. And so to do that, you need to organize. So I love the combination of all three of those things. Yeah. And so is it largely then, is it largely like, is it, so it started with lawsuit stuff. So my back, I thought I was going to be an environmental lawyer when I grew up and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, I guess. But so is it, um, is it largely through lawsuits you do that or what kind of advocacy and, and science work do, do water keepers do? Yeah, every group is different. So okay. a lot of groups are very litigious. Um, and, but in Canada, we have different laws than oh, you right. have in in the states and so it becomes trickier for us in terms of um our systems and we you have to go through criminal courts but um you know like at ottawa riverkeeper we didn't go the litigious route what we started doing was really working together to collaborate like one of the themes of this project i'm working on now is really it's our shared responsibility and that's the kind of attitude i took when it came to the ottawa river it was like uh everybody's got to be part of the solution, you know, whether you're one of the polluters or you're a farmer, an engineer, you're a citizen, you live there. Um, so everybody has to kind of work together. And, you know, we did use the kind of name and shame ta tactics a little bit, I'll say, and to get um, municipalities on board, for example, we had a lot of really good success with eliminating combined sewer overflows and the and you know by really helping the people in ottawa understand how often untreated sewage was going yeah. to the river and they're like that's obviously oh, disgusting but... and why are we doing it it's like right. the 21st century <laughs> so right, right, right. um you know that's a really important tool and then i think another really important tool is just building a sense of pride and a, and a community around that river to say like hey this is my river i want to be able to swim in it i want to be able to eat the fish out of it so i'm going to get involved i'm going to stand up at my city council meeting i'm going to talk to my my politician my prime minister and that's what it's going to really take and you're close enough that you can actually talk to the because you're in ottawa you can talk to the prime minister because you're right there potentially that's really cool so yeah that's you, right uh, like if you can't get it right with the river that flows through your nation's capital <laughs> how are you going to get it right anywhere else that's that's a fantastic okay um so you alluded a little bit to the project you're working on now which is the binagami project right can you tell us a little bit about this project and kind of um, what does it encompass? How did it start? Yeah, well, it really started um, with, you know, as you know, the Great Lakes St. Lawrence watershed is really huge. It's the world's largest freshwater ecosystem. It's amazing. And political boundaries, there's, you know, parts of Canada, parts of America. And um, in our work, our, our advocacy work and and in general, like we just felt like 
there wasn't enough attention being paid to the Great Lakes in terms of how important it was and what we have to lose if we don't take care of it. So we thought it would be really helpful to raise the profile of the Great Lakes. But as we started talking this through, we realized like you can't really talk about the Great Lakes without talking about the first peoples of the Great Lakes and their relationships. And what most people don't know is that in the Great Lakes St. Lawrence watershed, there's over 200 First Nations and tribes. And that, you know, in, in Canada and the United States, we often talk about, you know, we have this international joint commission that works to um, manage our shared waters in Canada and the US. And they always talk about this binational approach. And we're like, hey, this is not a binational approach. There's 200 sovereign nations in the watershed and they don't have a seat at the decision-making table. And they have a really, really deep understanding of the watershed and of the connections and of the importance of water to life. So um, as we started to explore that, we um, started working with some Indigenous knowledge keepers and specifically on this. Um, so in Lake Huron, um, we have the world's largest freshwater island, Manitoulin Island. And so we started working primarily with a lot of um, knowledge keepers from Manitoulin Island and they gifted us the name Binagame. It's an Anishinaabe Moan name. So the people of Manitoulin are Anishinaabek. And this meaning of binagame is like clean, pure water. And what they were trying to get at by gifting this name is that we really have a shared responsibility to have clean, pure water. And the emphasis really being on the shared responsibility piece and they the Indigenous people that are guiding us on this project, they really see the importance of working hand in hand, Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. So that's really the kind of origins of the Binagame project. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Think about that. What I'm hearing about is, uh, is this idea of collective responsibility. And that ties in my mind right into the same thing you're talking about the river keepers, right? Um, and that it's your idea uh, that, that, you know, to work towards solving these, I don't know if we solve problems, but to work to address problems, it's like I'm writing your grant proposal. Um, uh, but to work toward, to addressing these problems, uh, requires this sort of groups, you know, working together, maybe you traditionally haven't for any of a bunch of reasons. Right. But that gets me to this. Uh, and, and so here you're defining groups as pretty much everybody who lives in the area, or maybe did live and was potentially either displaced or um, uh, either you know geographically or maybe even economically displaced, maybe both. But that gets me thinking about this idea of like responsibility. What when you say sharing responsibility, what do you mean by that? I guess do you mean a responsibility for trying to like restore areas and uh, like how do you what is equitable sharing of responsibility in your mind? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, great question. And I think the span is wide. I mean, so shared responsibility means that each one of us can do something to protect water. And we're talking about protection as well as restoration, but, you know, I like to start with the protection piece. And, um, you know, what we'd love to have is that 
the health of the Great Lakes St. Lawrence is kind of central to everybody's decision making. So say like at a home level, you're like, oh, I really want to have a nice lawn. I don't want weeds. Well, maybe you're going to start to think about like, well, what if fertilizers or what if pesticides, what's that going to do to the web of life? Or, um, you know, I'm going to salt my driveway because I don't want to slip, but that salt, where's that salt going to go when it runs off? Where's that, where's that pesticide going to go when it runs off? And so if you start to think about the lakes, there's actions that you can take in your own home, or you can start to think about what's happening in your community, your neighborhood. Maybe you see like this one tributary that's flowing through your neighborhood is being destroyed, disrespected you know, cutting down the trees, it's now hot, it can't support cold fish anymore. Um, You could start to organize around that, organize the municipality. If you're a business, you can start to think about the impacts of your business and what are the impacts of your business on water? What kind of decisions could you be making that would be, uh, you know, that would benefit our Great Lakes? And I think, so it goes on and on, whether you work in government, whether you work in for a corporation, whether you like just have a family, whether you just like how you get through your daily life, yeah. there's things that you can do and it, it could be attached to your career, but it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be a river keeper to protect the water. You can be a radio host and protect the water. <laughs> Everybody can protect the water. And, um, you know, I have this kind of saying of like we all want people to take action right like but before people are gonna make a commitment to take action they have to be aware they have to have awareness and then they have to have an understanding and then they'll start to to take an action or make a commitment so that kind of awareness and understanding is really really important it's a big part of what we're doing with Binagame because we have a huge education component I think it's really key to and 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 awareness and understanding comes with connecting, also having a connection to the lake, yeah. if you're lucky enough. I think that's really key in my mind, thinking about helping people identify in some way with the lake, right? Um, and sort of, because to me, that's the connection between the first thing you're talking about uh, in the river keeper and, the understand, and, and helping everybody to understand their connection to spur action. Because I think a lot of people know sort of, at least in theory, what small steps they can take or should take, right? They know, um, but they decide not to for any of a bunch of reasons, uh, you know, good, bad, whatever. Um, but I think once you help people make that connection, I think that's what I see is really important about the Binagame project, right? Is it's giving people another access to identify more completely with the resource, I think. So that's really cool. So um, kind of building off of this, so some of the partners on this project are like huge names like Canadian Geographic or RBC. Um, and one of the you know concerns that we have and we talk about in our own program and I've talked with others is like, how do you effectively support um, work, particularly when you're not a member of the group that has been historically um, you know, kind of wronged in one way or another? And how do you bring the knowledge in in a way that's respectful and things like that? So do you have, like something I'm really curious about is how are do those big, big organizations, because one of the reasons that people don't do things is they say, well, what difference am I going to make if the big people are not doing anything, right? So do you have any examples of how these big names are really effectively supporting the work? Like, is there a connection that you need to make to them or is it just them listening or? 
Yeah, so I think I understand where you're going with this. Um, you know, what we want is we want Binagame to be a, a project that everybody can get involved with and be feel a part of and be a part of. And, you know, at Canadian Geographic, we we really excel at like storytelling and cartography. So those are two big pieces that we bring to this project. And um, and we have another partner on our project, Swimbrink Fish Canada, and they really excel at um, community engagement and creating community hubs to monitor water quality. So we have these like great tools and strengths that we bring to the project. And RBC as one of our funders, um, you know, they have a long history of funding water work starting, they had a blue water project and it's morphed over time. They have this uh, tech for nature and, and, and this comes back to the shared responsibility and everybody having um, a role to play. Yeah. But um, this concept of tech for nature, they love this idea. So as part of the Binagame project, we're telling stories, we're creating these big giant maps that are gonna be for uh, going out to schools all across the watershed free of charge. We loan these resources out, we have lesson plans. We have a whole education team at Canadian Geographic. We have indigenous educators involved in creating these lesson plans. The kind of tech piece, that's another cool element is that we're bringing in augmented reality uh, oh, cool. to the project. So you'll, you'll be on these big giant floor maps, whether it's at a school or at an event. And as you wander around with this downloaded app, these stories will start to pop up in 3D. And um, that's the kind of tech piece. And it's interesting because, you know, as I mentioned, the project is really Indigenous guided and our Indigenous elders, they actually want the they want these tech pieces because they really want to engage the youth and they know how important it is to engage the youth and they feel like this is one way to do it. But that's kind of how all these partners came together to start to collaborate. But the idea is like, we want to inspire people around the watershed to get involved in protecting water. And if they get inspired and feel like they hear a story about belugas in the St. Lawrence estuary who are in trouble and they're like, I got to save the belugas. Then we want to connect them with all the different groups on the ground that are doing work that they could get involved with. Right. Cause we know that one of the best things you can do is join others who are already doing work. So we're gathering all the different groups and organizations and projects. And we want, eventually you'll be able to go to the Binagame website. We, it's just, we haven't launched the, the rich website yet. We have just a placeholder, but uh, you'll be able to position yourself in the watershed to see where you live, what watershed you live in. You'll be able to see what nations are in that watershed, what indigenous languages are spoken in that watershed. And you'll be able to see what groups or projects are happening in that watershed that you could get involved with. But I mean, this map, so I, I got to go back this. I forgot. This is how we got hooked up initially. So you say we have a big giant map. That's actually not true. Uh, we work with the Center for Great Lakes Literacy. They have a big giant map. What you have is so much beyond. This thing is <laughs> ridiculous. I don't know what the size was. It was Canada. So I don't know how to do meters, but it was it was very significant, this map. Uh, you could fit like, uh, I mean, it was, you could fit two or three of our seagull maps on this map and our seagull maps are not small. Uh, so this is amazing. And that's kind of the skill. So I just, when you said that I had to interrupt all of this cool talk to just point out. So, uh, listeners, 
if this is something you need at all, you should go to the Benagame website and uh, you should get in contact and figure out what you need to get this map because it's amazing, but you probably don't have a place big enough, at least for the one that they had at the Iagler conference. Um, so it was awesome. And I really like how these different companies, like you're bringing in people, but it's not just bringing in names or something. They're bringing in their own skills, right? Um, and so you have the the technology and things like that. RBC, I assume, is bringing in their skills of not allowing me to exchange currency and other skills. And um, I don't have an account. That's what they told me. Um, but anyway, so that's 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 really, really neat. And so what's the time scale on all of it? That's what I'm wondering. So yeah, this is early days in the rollout. Um, initial PR push, that's what I'm going to call this. And uh, but, but what is the time scale for trying to, uh, for this project? Is it open-ended or do you have, um, you know, a period that you're trying to work in? Yeah, no, thanks. It's a good question. So right now what we're doing, we have, you saw the big giant floor map. I call it our prototype because that's our first kick at the can with this amazing map. And now we're in this kind of stage of gathering. So we're actually taking this map um, to communities, to nations. We're asking them like, is this how you want to be reflected on the map? Do we have the languages right? Is this? And at the same time, we're letting stories percolate up And so we're just starting, we're going to start sharing stories soon, and that's going to be ongoing for years. But in the the, the, uh, timelines for getting the education kits together, these big giant floor maps with the lesson plans, with the AR stories on top, are another year. So in one year's time, those will be available. You can get on the website, you can book the map, the maps, the map and the lesson plans, they'll go out. You can have them for three weeks. We get them to you, everything free of charge. You ship them back. We get them to the next school. So in about a year, uh, that's going to be ongoing. We're also talking about doing a tour, bringing artists on board to talk about the Great Lakes, to share the tools, et cetera. Um, so the project is is continually growing with excitement. Yeah. And we're always like we're still trying onboarding new funders because we have so many exciting elements that we want to continue with and we need to develop, but um, it's a multi-year initiative and we'll see. I mean, our goal is to just have it keep, to keep going. And I think one of the exciting pieces is like building this alliance of nations around the watershed and the piece that the nations are most interested in is this concept of like, reframing how we think about water and our relationship with water and they're interested in this concept of legal personhood for water so um there's so many amazing elements of the project that just yeah it's really exciting fantastic i do want to um this is really exciting thank you for sharing all of this with us because i agree with you that it's um this is kind of my first time learning about this because i didn't get to go to the iagler conference but it i can imagine being um, if somebody had brought something like this to my classroom, I can imagine that it would have blown my I do want to make a, a, a acknowledge Swim Drink Fish because I forgot to acknowledge them. I had a lovely, lovely conversation um, back in 2021 with Mark Matson, And um, so that's episode number 45. Um, and they are doing a lot of really cool work, including oh, yes. helping support this. That was part of, our, part of our season of giving, wasn't it? Every year we do a Halloween episode. On this a little bit goofy and self-indulgent as opposed to this and um so we try to make up for it by featuring nonprofits. uh so yeah that was a very fun conversation with with mark that you had excellent yeah they're and- great i love it i i do want to just also mention like um one of our collaborators on this project uh are filmmakers and they created a documentary series called great lakes untamed 
So uh, if you're interested in kind of natural history of the Great Lakes, and they're amazing documentary makers, like they worked on planet Earth and these like, you know, that's the kind of quality that we're seeing. And so you can watch those doc, there's, it's a three part series. Um, in the USA, they have a partnership with Smithsonian. So you can watch them on Smithsonian. And in Canada, if you're watching, uh, you can watch them on TVO. There's links to it on the Binagame website, binagame.org. But um, again, just helping to uh, build awareness around the amazing, incredible natural history of the Great Lakes, which is just mind-blowing. Well, Meredith, it has been really amazing having you on talking to us about not only, I mean, we've gone everywhere from river keepers to looking just Great Lakes wide, right? Learning about all sorts of cool projects, amazing things you've done, amazing people that you've partnered with, and it's all really fascinating. And most importantly, it's given me ideas for at least a half a dozen follow-up episodes, which is which is reason number one that we have guests on, to keep feeding the content machine. But reason number two we have guests on is uh, to actually ask them two questions. And the uh, first question is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? No contest. I'd go for the great sandwich. A great sandwich. Team sandwich. Yep. That's fantastic. And I forgot to ask where you are in Ottawa. You were somewhere in Ottawa. So uh, I'm, Ottawa. I'm, yeah, just north of Ottawa in a okay. little village called Wakefield. Wakefield. All right. Well, one day, I'm, this is a lie. I'm going to be honest. This is a lie. One day, I'm going to go to a Wakefield and uh, I'm going to want a sandwich. I would love to go to Wakefield. Just the odds of it happening are very small. But uh, it's a, it's the it's the we rest our show in little white lies sometimes. But so when I'm in Wakefield and I want a really great sandwich, where should I go? Oh well, you would go to Juniper Farm. So we have yeah. this like amazing network of organic regenerative farmers in our well, region. You know, I might go to Wakefield. Them. All right. You you have got to come to Wakefield, Stuart. You're going to love it. Everybody loves coming to Wakefield. Uh, and I'll take you swimming in the river. We can there swim is. down the rapids. Um, so Juniper Farm, Organic Farm, they make the best farm sandwich. It's so delicious. So yum, yum. All right. I'm headed there uh, in theory. And so... Um... I was just looking at pictures and yeah, um, <laughs> like I was oh, Juniper Farms going, or just oh, kind of pictures gracious. in general? Yeah. Well, pictures of the food at Juniper Farms. So okay. The bread. <laughs> the bread. All right. Hold okay. on. I'm going there. Juniperfarms.com. Yeah. Anyway, you asked the question. So, I'll let you um, know. Okay. Sure. So um, our second question um, is, what is a special place in the Great Lakes that you'd like to share with our audience? And it can be one that you've already mentioned, or you can add another one, but also what makes it special? Mm, well, I mean, that is such a hard question to ask, but uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say the Ottawa River, because I do think it's like a, an amazing, gorgeous, beautiful, wild river in so many places. And in fact, um, one of the things I love about our big giant floor map, when you look at it, you see how important the northern part of the watershed is to the Great Lakes. You look at the area the Ottawa River watershed north of the St. Lawrence, and you look at north of Superior, and that's my other place, like the north shore of Lake Superior is like, to me, I think one of the most beautiful places in Canada, and there's so many beautiful places in Canada, but it's wild and rugged and so beautiful, the rocks and the, so I, I really love those two areas. And for me, it's about, I, I love the wild places and, um, 
And there's so many. We're so blessed uh, to live here in the world's largest freshwater ecosystem. Well, Meredith Brown, Director of Special Projects for Canadian Geographic and uh, Riverkeeper Meredith, Founding Executive Director of Ottawa Riverkeeper. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. amazing stuff and it's it's interesting to bring in all these corporate because really what they're talking about in all honesty it's it's uh, sort of a variation on the sea grant model in some ways not that they weren't sea grant's not the only one to do this but it's similar to what we try and do at sea grant right where it's like uh just all these different levels there's outreach there's education pieces and really trying to do everything you can to facilitate others and make it easy you know no cost minimal cost and, and stuff like that but to see it doing it coming from kind of the corporate side is, is kind of a cool way to take a crack at this. Uh, right. But then also the importance of like absolutely everybody. I think um, what I would have loved to ask, but I, I stopped myself because I'm like, nope, ask that in a year is like about the stories that pop up yeah. and what are kind of some of the because um, when I've seen um, similar presentations on. Uh, like there's one along um, the Detroit River where they're telling stories about things that happen. I mean, people, I don't know. It's just, it's really, really cool to see how many different ways that people can be tied to locations. Yep. No, and that's just really important. Remember we had that conversation with Rachel Haverlock of the Freshwater Lab. She's an English prof, but she like collects people's water stories, um, which was just fascinating like that to hear that. And I, of course, do a lot of qualitative research. And so stories are really interesting. Uh, uh once I once I started, you have to learn how to you have to learn how to be a qualitative researcher. I came from a quantitative background, and I was really suspicious at first. But the more I uh, get into the field, and the more I look at stuff, the more important the idea of stories comes to me. And uh, you know, whether or not it's research, or whether it's not just it's just uh, or whether or not it's just hearing people's stories, I think it's really powerful and really important. I agree. And we have no announcements because you did all the crazy things earlier this year. So we can just we do no it, right? Teach Me About the Great Lakes is brought to you by the fine people at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant. We encourage you to check out the great work we do at iicgrant.org and at Grant on Facebook, Twitter, sort of, and other social media. Teach Me About the Great Lakes is produced by Hope Charters, Megan Gunn and Reedy Miles. Carolyn Foley is our senior producer, and Ethan Chitty is our associate producer and fixer. Our super fun podcast artwork is by Joel Davenport, and the show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose. Quinn, we thank you for everything. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please email it to teachmeaboutthegreatlakes at gmail.com or leave a message on our hotline. I don't know if anyone has ever called the hotline, but no, they have. You can be but, the only when we <laughs> but you can get your voice on air. Thousands of listeners. Yeah. If you call us and leave a message at 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Teach Great Lakes. But like the shell of a bleeding out turtle, things are a bit cracked there these days. You should have gone with a snail. Anyway, thanks for listening. But they don't bleed out is the point. They don't bleed <laughs> out. That's the, the, Keep the, so. grading those 